Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Book and Film Globe podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe and the greatest living American writer. You can find our site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and much more. We have a fine show for you this week. I'm going to talk to Stephen Garrett about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1, the latest Mission Impossible movie that is a lot of fun and also very silly. And I'm going to talk to Scott Gold about The Witcher Season 3 Part 1. Everything is Part 1 now. Uh, The Witcher Season 3 Part 1 is not so successful, and Scott has some thoughts. But first, we're going to raise our brows high, as we do sometimes on this show, and talk to critic Michael Washburn about the life and work of Milan Kundera, the Czech writer who died recently at the age of 94. And Michael will be along right after this musical interview. The Czech writer Milan Kundera died recently at the age of 94. And Michael Washburn wrote about Kundera and his significance on the site. Michael has written about Milan Kundera before. And he's here today to talk to me about Milan Kundera. Hello, Michael. Hi, Neil. I got to say, like, this is one of those writers who I I had, uh, I already thought he was already dead, to be honest. You know, he was 94 years old. He hadn't published a lot in the last 20 years. He's a writer who was popular when I, when we were in college, right? That's when The Unbearable Lightness of Being, his most popular novel, and then The Book of Laughter and Forgetting came out. And it was, those were books that were in every dorm room, at least in my circles. And, you know, there was a popular movie made out of uh, the unbearable lightness of being as well. And then, um, you know, I felt like he, uh, he sort of faded from the general public view, ob- although obviously not from yours. Mm-hmm. So I guess my question is, you know, Kundera, to me, is a writer who was very significant because of the way he described life in Eastern Europe during sort of late era communism and sort of, you know, g- gave a middle finger, I guess, to the totalitarianism of those regimes. And so my question is, and you pointed this out extremely uh, eloquently in your piece, is why does that still matter now? Well, you know, you're quite right that he did have this vogue back when we were in college and then he faded from view. And that's unfortunate because he's a wonderful writer. And Although I agree with what you say here, shortly before his death, some of his most influential essays were republished in book form, and The Tragedy of Small Nations is one of them, or I should say uh, The Literature of Small Nations and The Tragedy of Central Europe. And these are a pair of wonderful essays, and they take up similar subject matter. He's very much interested in the plight of Czechoslovakia and its struggle to forge and maintain an independent identity surrounded by more powerful nations. I really don't think you can understand Kundera and his work outside the context of Czech history and what happened during the Prague Spring and the crushing of the Prague Spring and the repression that followed. And he's very much interested in the human condition and the relationship of citizens to the state and life under a repressive regime and the travails of those who seek to have some measure of intellectual freedom. So for all these reasons, he will continue to be an important writer. The Cold War is over and done with, but a lot of the issues that he wrote about are still very much with us, disturbingly so. 
because there are battles going on all the time, all around us over freedom of expression and censorship. And we cover this a lot on the site and whether people should have the right to broach certain subjects and to speak their mind at universities and on social media. So these issues are, are very much with us. Well, yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot on the show and on the site about sort of the sensorial uh, elements of society, both on the right and the left, uh, and you know there, that there is a, an ongoing interest to repress or at least restrict speech. But you know, I, I will say that there is a certain kind of restriction that occurred in sort of totalitarian the totalitarian states of the Eastern Bloc. I, I don't care how many times uh, you know libraries are trying to keep books out of circulation or how many uh, sensitivity readers are are bodlerizing uh, text, it's still not exactly the same thing. I mean, the stuff that Kundera lived through and wrote about were, um, I wouldn't say they're exceptional in human history, uh, but they're certainly not, you know, what we in the West are living through right now. I mean, you and I are sitting here having this conversation without anybody caring. <laughs> I mean, I hate, to, I hate to put it so bluntly, but, you know, you know what I mean? Like, we're not being monitored by, by the state. Well, I don't hear the secret police knocking on my door, but here's why I don't completely agree with you. Because one thing that Kundera wrote about in these essays that I mentioned, and also in his fiction, was how a kind of softening up occurs that makes people susceptible to domination and repression. And that takes the form of dumbing down the populace and the diminishing of cultural literacy and people becoming less familiar with their history and with certain works of literature that were important in their national past. And a lot of that is what's going on now in the guise of cancel culture. So he, he wrote about this very explicitly in his essays. And you may remember in my review of that book that came out that Harper published that uh, reissued these two essays, I brought Kafka into the discussion because there are certain themes of nationalism and Czech national identity in Kafka's writing. And I thought that Kafka was the perfect complement to Kundera because Kafka presented in the form of fiction certain themes that Kundera takes up in these essays about how when knowledge ceases to be transmitted, when one generation abdicates its responsibility and doesn't educate the younger generations, then people lose this kind of cohesion that they need in order to withstand aggression and domination from the outside. Well, I'll say this, like I, I, you know, you and I have talked about this quite a bit. I felt that sort of that heaviness of, of monitoring and repression of speech during uh, the heart of the COVID era, particularly there was a lot of, um, there, there was a lot of sort of low level, uh, repression of speech going or even high level repression of speech i would say that you know the, and i and i agree that like you know kafka came to mind quite often uh during during the darkest days you know the difference is between now and sort of the totalitarian era of the eastern bloc is that the bubble burst you know that there were there were other forces at work in society that finally allowed sort of you know, debate to flourish again. And, you know, I know that there aren't a lot of people out there, you know, sitting around heeding Kundera's warnings, you know, that's not like, you know, it, it's kind of a specialty topic in a lot of ways, but I, but I do, I hope that um, there are enough people who are paying, monitoring the situation, paying attention to uh, counteract some of the more uh, sensorial aspects of our society. Well, for all the dark themes in his work, 
we should never lose sight of the humanity that comes through in Kandera's writing. The relationships in his novels are beautiful, and they really have emotional resonance. And I'm thinking of The Unbearable Lightness of Being and some of his less-known works like Le Dentité and La Lantera. And these are just wonderful novels, and some of them are actually kind of strange hybrids of memoir and novel and treatise, and they're unclassifiable. And that's another thing I love about him. But he really was, he was a very warm, humanistic writer who was interested in relationships and how they flourish in the most adverse conditions. I was going to use the the, uh, term humanistic because his books are uh, full of love and laughter and, and joy. And the fact that his characters were able to find that and music and all that in the middle of you know, some of the most repressive uh, times in human history is, is a testament both to the characters and also to the writer. And mm-hmm. I, I feel like, could, you know, there's a lot of talk after Kundera Pass about how he was like, of any writer who didn't win the Nobel Prize and, and died at, at a late age and should have, you know, Kundera was right at the top of the list. It's kind of surprising he wasn't on the list. I really think that the Nobel Committee has been remiss in not awarding him the Nobel Prize for Literature. I think if anyone in the last 50 years has deserved it, he did. No one would have protested. Everyone would have been like, oh, yes, that's a good that's a good pick. I don't think that the choice would have been as controversial as some of the recent ones. Or I don't think you want to get into this here and now on this podcast. But I, I think that some of the recent selections were politically motivated in the worst sense of the term. And I think writers less deserving than Kandera have received the award, and, and that's a shame. Well, there's no doubt about that. And we encourage you, uh, we from Book and Film Globe, encourage you to read Milan Kundera. Uh, his books are, many of them are available in English translations. And if you speak other languages, they're probably available there as well. He is a widely published and much beloved author, and people will remember him fondly for many years to come. So, Michael, thank you so much for covering uh, Kundera for us and for talking to me about him today. It was a pleasure. Have a great weekend. You're fighting to save an ideal that doesn't exist. Never did. You need to pick a side. Mr. Garrett, your mission this week, if you choose to accept it, is to write a review of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, starring Tom Cruise, written and directed by Christopher McQuarrie, also starring many beautiful women, and Simon Pegg, and Ving Rhames, and some other people, featuring a lot of nonsense about a mystical key, and that's... (laughs) And AI paranoia. Also, all those beautiful women are all British. Did you notice that? They're all British. Beautiful British women. Well, no, no. Rebecca Ferguson is Swedish.
she just has a British accent. Oh, oh, sorry, sorry. And, and, a, and a British name. But her name is, you know, you wouldn't think someone named Rebecca Ferguson is Swedish. <laughs> the, the other women we're referring to are Vanessa Kirby, always, and uh, Haley Atwell, otherwise known as uh, Peggy Carter from the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. And she, boy, she's in this a lot. There's a lot of Haley Atwell. You better like Haley Atwell if you're going to watch this movie. A lot of her looking flustered and, and not really knowing what to do. It seems odd. A lot of it. Lot, I mean, there's more Tom Cruise. He doesn't look flustered. Oh, Tom Cruise? No, he's in his element. He's he running really fast. <laughs> you know, that's the thing about the Mission Impossible movies. You want to see Tom Cruise do three He does run fast. You want to see him do three things. One, run real fast, jump off of things, and ride a motorcycle. And he does all of those. Many times. <laughs> <laughs> repeatedly in multiple on multiple continents <laughs> i was gonna ask what about this mystery woman who's like the eurasian like the hit, assassin the uh, eurasian assassin with anger management issues she's so angry through the whole thing that's palm clementive who is otherwise known as mantis from the guardians of the galaxy movie oh. yeah and she's like the fourth female lead also very very beautiful woman but then you know they're all like these they're not like love objects for Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt character. They're like these, I don't even know what they're like friend objects. It's very strange. <laughs> All right. So look, this movie is really stupid. I mean, the key where <laughs> they're chasing this magical key all over the world and they keep exchanging pieces of the key and the bad guy played by Isai Morales of all people. I mean, he's, he's pretty charming, but he, he just kind of just appears whenever he's supposed to. Yeah. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of just people appearing on another continent after having been on a previous, a different continent, you know, a scene earlier. The, you know, Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg just show up. They're like these magical helpers for Tom Cruise. It's very strange. I know that all the movies are like this. Yeah, there's a lot of mystical, like magical thinking in terms of the screenwriting. And a lot of stupid screenwriting, um, I don't know, stunt screenwriting bits that are explained away with people saying like, what do I do? I don't know. Figure it out. And then that's supposed to make it better. You know, if they just call out how stupid it is, it's fine. With Isai, let's go back to Isai Morales. With Isai Morales as Gabriel, is he, is he some, like, I thought he was like an AI personified or something. He was somehow in cahoots with the entity, the stupid AI thing. He's a real person. Yeah. Every, there's these incredible surveillance tools that Simon Pegg and Ving Rhames have at their disposal for some reason. They have unlimited surveillance. There's apparently cameras everywhere. Uh, and But the Isai Morales character has some sort of AI-aided ability to you know, evade. Yeah, they never really talk about that, right? He was like, I know everything, you know. He, he, like, I know everything about you. It was, like, weird. And, and then he was in some weird, you remember that weird, like, uh, roadie equipment box that he was in? Like, they, they, she unlocked him and he had some weird mask on his face so that he could breathe in the box. He couldn't just have bought a ticket? <laughs> okay, so this movie's stupid as hell. There were a couple of action set pieces that I enjoyed. The the car chase. Pretty good. Car chase yeah. in the, street, the streets of Rome was fantastic and funny. Yeah. I think this movie's funnier than most of the Mission Impossible movies. I will give it It that. doesn't take itself too seriously. And it was, you know, it was better than the car chase scene in Indiana Jones and the, and, uh, the Dial of Destiny. Um, and that, you know, speaking of... There's another fight on top of a train. Jesus Christ, it's so stupid. I, I just don't buy these fights on trains. They're they're so fake. 
You'd fall off immediately. I'm sorry. You can't. Right. Come on. It was the same fight. That said, I, I, I shouldn't be spoiling this, but I don't care. It's only part one of what appears to be an eight-hour movie. <laughs> the, the scene the, the scene where the, the, they have to, get, you know, run up the train that's falling off of the exploding bridge, you know, I that was very that. fun. That was fun. Right the, I love that. It was right at the end, and it was it was the action. It was, it was very clever and cool-looking. Yeah. It was great. Very enticing. That and the car chase were probably the, the best parts. I also thought I liked the shenanigans and the, the sort of the walk, just walking around the Abu Dhabi airport real fast. Yeah, that was kind of fun. That was kind of fun. Although his weird sleight of hand, close magic nonsense with, uh, you know, when he meets Haley Atwell. I'm just like, what is happening right now? You guys are doing bad David Copperfield close magic right now. Like, this is just silly enough already. <laughs> What's that behind your ear? <laughs> yeah. And what's up with his lighter that's supposed to be like, be a, you know, read tremors if there's an earthquake or something, right? Yeah. I, I don't know. These are weird movies. They're kind of like this, uh, there's this unholy combination of like James Bond and Fast and the Furious. You know, it's all about family, but they're also super spies. Um, and the, the, the plot, the plot makes no sense. The plot of this movie makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And it's also like rampant, crazy paranoia about artificial intelligence, like jacked up insanely. Like they know where you live. It, it, it's watching you now. AI has to that point where there was a point where Simon Pegg and, and Ving Rhames started like going, it's in our laptops. And they started slamming their laptops on the desk and breaking them all. And I'm just like, and then by the way, their technology totally works fine if they need the technology to work. Right. And the, and the, oh, the world's intelligent community is, is furiously trying to make everything analog. So our <laughs> AI uh, overlords don't, don't learn all of our secrets. And, you know, it's so funny too, because the movie starts with a, a scene on a Russian submarine and we're like, oh, we're back to the Russians being the bad guys. That makes sense. Russia's the bad guy these days, but no, it's AI. AI is what we have to fear above all else. I think it's just screenwriters are worried they're going to lose their jobs. But the thing is, Stephen, <laughs> this movie, the screenplay was as if AI had written it. Some of the dialogue was so corny and so bad and so expository. I was like, maybe this is AI's master plan to fill our brains with dialogue that's so bad that we run out into the middle of the street and throw ourselves under trucks and so it can rule the world. I just like that scene where AI throws a big rave and is like actually projected onto all the screens to like a big thump, thump, thump soundtrack. Was AI rolling on Molly? I think the entity was like DJ that night or something. DJ entity. Yeah, DJ, DJ entity. DJ entity. <laughs> Look, this is, people seem to love these movies. They're fun. They're fun. This was like, it got exhausting after a while, but it's fun. It's a little long. There's, 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 there's two or three smashing set pieces, um, and a lot of. T if you like watching Tom Cruise just pump his arms, looking real serious, running through streets <laughs> of cities, jumping off a of shit. This is this is this is your this is the gold standard, man. Okay, but this is you know this is what's really telling actually is that you haven't mentioned at all the big big stunt that Tom Cruise will like was so proud of and which they've been selling this movie for, for the better part of a year, like him driving a motorcycle off a cliff, which comes late in the movie. And I couldn't have cared less because I've seen it like in all the promos for so many months now that it was like, eh, whatever. But then that crazy CGI train stunt at the end, like I was like, this is fantastic. Give me more of this. Like the actual real stunt with the real movie star couldn't have cared less. It was good. It was a good stunt. 
that was fine. But like, did it need to be Tom Cruise? No. Like, fake it. Use a stuntman or, or just do CGI. I don't need it. To, I don't need to know it's him. It doesn't add anything to the plot. It is crazy that he drove a motorcycle off of a mountain while wearing a parachute, though. Come on. It's crazy. It's crazy that he's going to be, like, doing a spacewalk for his next movie or whatever, you know? Which is just, like, I think just speaks to his crazy godlike insecurity or whatever the hell it is. I don't know why you would do that. Why would you do any of this? He is a man who is dedicated to his craft, Stephen. He's got a death wish. He's going he's gonna to outlive us. Are you kidding me? There's so many Thetans in his blood. <laughs> I think he's a guy who has a, who, who, and this is my dark analysis of him, that he actually secretly hates his life and wants it to end and so thinks of the most ridiculous stunts so that he could say he died doing what he loved. I disagree. I disagree. He never. He didn't kiss any of the girls in this movie. None of the women got got smooshed. I don't by think him. they'd ever get smooshed. Sort of by snu- him. Yeah, that's not going to happen. He sort of snuggled with Rebecca Ferguson a little bit. A little bit. Uh, but but like it was, it was like with a sister. Anyway, <laughs> uh, Mission Impossible: Dead Dead Reckoning Part One. <laughs> I, don't, I don't, this this sucker did not need to be two parts, but whatever, whatever. It's fine. I'm you know. I, now I have to see how it turns out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now you're hooked. Now you're hooked. You gotta, you gotta give it up for Tom Cruise. The man, the man will throw himself onto anything, into anything, through anything for our entertainment. So God bless him for that. And thank you, Stephen, for uh, writing this review. Although I haven't seen the review yet, I think I need to give you the other half of the key so you'll submit the piece. I'm, I'm but it sure. will self-destruct. It will self-destruct. No, the review will self-destruct, and this segment will self-destruct in five seconds. <laughs> Good luck. I won't abandon Siri. Neutrality has consequences, too. Embrace. Well, that's deeply worrying. Everything that's happening, it's all connected. And she's at the center of it. If war is coming, there is no hiding her from it. You sure about this? Are you... over how cute they look for monsters and they're like no please don't hurt me and then wow fangs just like a boatload of fangs all up in your business one of the best things about being a pop culture observer is that you get to watch pop culture properties deteriorate in real time and such is the case with the witcher which blew into our lives a few seasons ago uh, with a lot of uh, enthusiasm, people who loved the Witcher video games and novels were thrilled to see Henry Cavill's performance uh, as uh, I think his name is Gestalt of Evian, the the Witcher. Um, and now it has reached its third season, and it is it is starting to show some signs of wear. And Henry, Henry Cavill's on his way out as the main character. Scott Gold is our Witcher watcher, and he has watched The Witcher season three, uh, part one, season three, part one. I'm sorry, and he's here now to talk to me about it. Hello, Scott. Hey, Neil. Great to be back on the podcast. So you've been watching The Witcher. <laughs> yeah, with, uh, you know, I think my dentist is going to be really mad at me because it just makes me grind my back molars really hard 
and I'm not alone here. Um, as I wrote uh, on the website, the fan base is less than thrilled with this season, um, perhaps even more so than the last season. And it seems like with every subsequent season, starting with season two, the calls for pitchforks and rotten fruit and you know howling and screaming and gathering of the townsfolk to, to burn the castle down seems to grow. And I can't lie, it's a lot of it is warranted. And the person for whom it's most warranted is the star of the show who is leaving at the end of the season, uh, most notably because he didn't like the fact that the writers and producers expressed open contempt, open contempt for the source material. So when the star of the show is bowing out because the writers and producers just are doing such a disservice to the to the lore and the stories and the characters, you know the show is in trouble. And it it does show because the property is thrilling. Here, here's the thing. Yeah, Henry Cavill, I, you know, my wife is a big Witcher fan or at least loved the first season like Witcher fans did. And, you know, Henry Cavill uh, was a fan of the video games. And so that's why he took the role to begin with. And so, you know, he was excited to do, to do this. And I, I just don't understand exactly why uh, someone would adapt something like this with a huge fan base and a huge um, a, a bunch of lore and then turn it into this sort of bad political intrigue show. When really what people want to watch in The Witcher are, is uh, is The Witcher himself fighting monsters. Exactly. That's a wonderful point. And I think most of all, you know, my sadness for the adaptation of The Witcher comes from the fact that they had such a wonderful opportunity. And there's a, just a tremendous amount of squandered potential. Um, tell me if this premise sounds familiar. You have a gruff but very capable warrior uh, who kind of goes from from place to place and takes jobs for money and sometimes they involve violence and all of a sudden he has to take care of and protect a child and that complicates things. Does that sound familiar at all? It does. You know, I wish people would take care and protect children on TV a little bit less. In real life, sure. <laughs> In real life, yes, take care of and protect the children, but on TV, but yeah, but that is that's a classic, you know, it's a classic premise. It's, it's the premise of the very popular Emmy nominated The Last of Us uh, on HBO. Yeah, it's and The Last of Us. It's The Mandalorian. It's a great premise, and it's something that people are naturally drawn to, and it's something that makes the the books and the even the games so great. And you know, they had such an opportunity with the show to make it a little bit more episodic, and they've had moments of brilliance. The first episode of season two was a kind of bottle episode where you had you know one singular monster story and it was a great episode there was a kind of beauty and the beast thing there was a scary vampire involved and everything gets kind of tidily wrapped up and Geralt goes on his way at the end that's the kind of thing that would really work out great for this show uh but they just decide to say nah we're gonna you know lean into all of these high fantasy politics with the, the elves and the various kingdoms and who wants what and who's you know, all these different machinations, which are convoluted and, to be frank, boring. Like, it's just not that thrilling. I want to see Henry Cavill pull out his silver sword and go to town on some super scary CGI monster, which we do get a bit of. There are a couple of cool monsters, but not enough. It's it's just too little too late at this point, I think. Yeah, and that's, I think, the problem with fantasy shows on TV in general is that they, they uh, lean too heavily into the world building and not into what people want to see, which is people fighting dragons and, and beasts. Yeah. I mean, that's super thrilling. Now 
if they leaned into that too hard, then the show would be equally boring if it was all action and no substance. But there is a way to balance those things that would satisfy the fan base and would satisfy the viewers who haven't read the novels or haven't played the games. Uh, and, you know, there's definitely a way to do that. But, you know, the writers are just like, nah, we're just going to take this and just do like whatever to it. You know, it's like it's like they were given all of the pieces to a Ferrari and they decided to like slap an El Camino engine in it because they thought it looked cool. It's just like, what are you doing? Like you had all of the makings of greatness and you're screwing it up in real time. It's very frustrating. Well, if this uh, SAG after strike ever wraps up, maybe uh, maybe you and I, well, not you and I, you and my wife uh, can seize control of the Witcher franchise and do it right. Yeah, we're going to start working on our fan fiction, Neil. It's, it's happening. You should. It's uh, AU, all, all alternate universe fan fiction. I dig it's, it. Uh, Geralt, Geralt of Rivia in Chicago. <laughs> he has to open a restaurant. Gerald of Riviera. <laughs> Ger Gerald Riviera. He's an Italian chef. All right. Scott Gold, thank you so much. The Witcher Season 3, Part 1. <laughs> Everything has to be Part 1. W Witcher Season 3, Dead Reckoning, Part 1 is on Netflix now. All right. Thanks, Scott, for talking to me about The Witcher Season 3, Part 1. Thank you, Stephen Garrett, for talking to me about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. And thank you to Michael Washburn for talking to me about Milan Kundera, who passed away recently at the age of 94. I am Neil Pollock. I am the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, and your friend on this podcast nearly every week. You can find the site at www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We provide comprehensive coverage of the worlds of books and film and streaming TV, and I will talk to you soon. Original Production.